You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm talking with Michael Lerman. Michael is the artistic director of the Philadelphia Film Festival and has been for the last eight years. He's also the artistic director of the Palm Springs Film Festival and is a programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival. In this episode, you'll hear how Michael got his start in film curation as a college student who just really loved movies and wanted to share them. Then I go door to door in the middle of the night, just sliding these things under the door, trying to get people to show up. I didn't know it at the time, but that's programming. He'll share the story of how he worked his way into programming at the world's biggest film festivals, including one of the most prestigious ones in Toronto. And I was still, I was shocked when I got it. And I will never forget the smiles on on both of their faces when they Skyped me to tell me I got it. And we'll talk about how in this new world of Netflix, there's still nothing quite like seeing a film in a sold out theater. You're laughing together, you're crying together, you're all there experiencing the same thing. And there's nothing better than when everyone gasps at the same moment in a movie. All this and more about Michael Lerman, his quest to share movies all around the world, and why it always comes back to Philly. Now, on Philly Who. I love the city, I love the city's filmgoers. I mean, it's home, right? Like, it's always gonna be home. I'm your host, Kevin Schmidlin. Stay tuned. So, Michael Lerman was born in the heart of Philadelphia at Penn Hospital and spent his childhood hopping around the suburbs of Bryn Mawr and Wynwood. He would go on to attend Bard College, where he got his movie curating start and would eventually become a year-round film festival attendee and programmer. But while you and I don't get to spend our professional lives watching and dissecting films like Mike does, we all got our movie-watching start pretty much in the same place, through the wonderful world of Disney. My mom took me to see Fantasia. I saw it and I was mesmerized. Yeah, what about it did you love? I don't know. It was all of those elements. You know, it was musical, it was visual, it was theatrical. Fantasia was a very theatrical cartoon. And all of those things just kind of clicked for me. And pretty soon it became this thing where, you know, there had to be rules on how many movies I was allowed to watch in a day just to tamper my desire to satiate wanting to see more and more. And I would buy these film history books and I would spend the whole summer just watching everything they mentioned in the book. I just would try to watch as much as possible. Even when I didn't understand it, I would watch it. In fact, when I didn't understand it, I would watch it more. Or if I didn't like it and everyone else did, I would try to figure out why they did. And I would, I would watch these things over and over again. So somewhere in there, you know, when I was 11, my parents were like, well, we should take you to the film festival. What looks interesting? My mom showed me the guide. And it was the first year of the festival. I went to see Kronos by Guillermo del Toro, who we all now know. Um, but at the time, it was his first feature. And, and I was at the Sam Eric. She took me to see that. She took me to see The Secret Adventures of Tom Thumb and a couple other things that were weird and dark and um, probably not age appropriate, but amazing. And, and so at the end of the festival then, did you know then that you wanted to continue going to festivals? Did you say to yourself, I want to just do this all the time forever? Well, there was, there's always been two elements of what I do. You know, like there's, there's been the element where I want to make stuff and I continue to do that element. And then there's the element of me wanting to find things that I love and show them to other people. And I didn't know it at the time, but my first kind of programming I did was at Bard. 
I ran an Asian film club and I really kind of dove in. I was specializing in Asian cinema when I was working on film studies. Uh, and then I was doing production also. I was doing production classes. But when I was going through the Asian cinema, I was like, well, you know, there's not really great access to a lot of these things. And I need money to go buy DVDs because you can't just rent everything you want. It was not as much a vibrant culture of being able to get things on Netflix or, or you know, illegally steal things on the internet, which is, is the way people still see a lot of things that are not released. And I knew that there were these sites like yesasia.com and um, DDD House where I could get these things, but I need money for them. So I said, well, why don't I start a club where I just project them? <laughs> And if nobody shows up, that's fine. You still get to watch. <laughs> I still get to watch it. And I, and I have to buy these things to do research on what I'm going to show and all these things that I, I went and asked for money from the convocation fund and started a club, a club of kind of one person. But then I was like, well, it actually is not okay if nobody watches it. I would like people to come watch it. And I would like to share these things because I'm spending a lot of time. So then I would do things like I, I saw what the festival was doing, specifically the Philadelphia Film Festival. And so I would spend nights writing program notes and I would write 150 word descriptions. I throw a photo up and then I go door to door in the middle of the night from dorm to dorm, like just sliding these things under the door, trying to get people to show up. And I didn't know it at the time, but that's programming, you know, and I just, I would fall in love with things and I'd want everyone to see them. And I would push my friends to see them. I think that some of my closest friends who I still talk to from school um, have a, massive Asian film knowledge because we would spend time, you know, diving deep into a filmmaker like Takashi Miike. And we, you know, I'd get a new bootleg DVD and then we'd say, oh, we got to watch it tonight. We got to do this. So that's kind of what film school was like. And so there, there's that element and then there's the production element. And those two things have kind of come hand in hand for me for most of my life. So was your, the curriculum of your time at Bard more about production and making film or was it about sort of consuming and appreciating film or was it both i think it was both i think that they're different you definitely see some filmmakers do this and i definitely think that um while i'm interested in telling stories and i have a writing partner that we can talk about that kind of tampers me down to just go like let's make it this about the story at the time i was really interested in filmmakers that were talking about film people like Nanny Moretti, who made this film called Palm Bella Rosa, which by all accounts, people would say is like somewhat experimental and is a very personal film and says a lot about him, but also says a lot about filmmaking and it's deconstructing certain tropes in filmmaking. And I was really interested in that type of filmmaking because I was so fascinated by the studies element that when you consume yourself with film, that becomes what you're making films about. And, you know, a lot of people would say that's somewhat masturbatory or it's not actually interesting. It's not productive in a way. And part of me agrees. And part of me says like, let's make stories about other things. I, I like where it meets somewhere in the midpoint. I like where it's like playing with the art form because you understand the art form so much, but also using it to tell the story. And my favorite film still deconstruct the art form in a way that the film the story is being deconstructed something that is indicative of something else where every choice is important to the story you want to tell but it's important in a way that is cognizant and comes from a place of understanding of the art form itself actually i, I had this thought the other day when thinking about sort of broadway shows how many broadway shows are about putting on broadway shows you know like it, it's it's it makes sense it's what the folks that are making the art what they know best would you say that you had this perspective about it 
at that time? Or is that something that over the years you've been able to sort of articulate? What's great kind of in a way, as it relates to what you just said about Broadway and, and putting on shows is the, sh- the shows that are not about that, but are still sort of about that. A movie that comes to mind is Inception, which is yeah, a movie that's about dreams and it's about putting this team together. But like there is a very prevalent, distinct read that you see all over the internet about how it's about filmmaking in a way. That's an example because every character breaks down as somebody who could be on set and is doing a piece of the set and that, that sort of thing. Another one that I like quite a bit is Magnolia because I think that movie is about the nature of storytelling and the metaphor that he's building there partially is about the nature of storytelling and the magical chance-like quality that you can build into a story. And so those things always stay with me because that you can watch Magnolia and be like, it's a movie about an ex game show winner who was a kid and, and a self-help guru and all of these things. And then it gets weird because frogs start falling from the sky. But uh, at the same time, it's also about storytelling. And so I wasn't nuanced in the way that I could bring those things together. Like I had tried to do right now, but I was definitely nuanced in the way that I understood that I wanted to be talking about these things. So how long until you started actually working on the curation side of festivals? I graduated school and I was working in the local movie theaters and my girlfriend at the time was still, she was a year younger than me. And so I decided I was going to live up there for a year and hang out with her. I was like, you know, I don't have any money to do anything anyway. Why don't I stay here and, and make some money and, and try to write something and finish this thesis film that I turned in, but I felt like was not done in editing. I also, at the same time, had the just kind of voracious appetite to keep watching. And that's the thing where I've always just wanted to see as much as possible. I want to see everything that's out there. This completest brain of mine that I've been cursed with just needs to understand and see and, and every movie that's ever been made. <laughs> right. And grow from it too. Like I, like I want to become a better filmmaker even with the bad stuff. Cause I, I feel like there's always gems hidden. I'm at this weird FOMO about what I'm missing in there. And so I was using the school newspaper to still get into film festivals, including like the first time I went to Sundance, I used the school newspaper credential to go to Sundance. So you got in like as doing a story, but you just wanted to be there. Right. Like I was, I was writing film reviews, but I was really just trying to watch as much as possible. And I went into the Woodstock Film Festival office and I had what I would characterize as a light argument with the head of the Woodstock Film Festival, um, who later became my boss. And I think that she just, you know, thought I was a kid um, and and just wanted to see some movies and was kind of directing me in one direction or another. And then we we had a, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better term, a pissing contest about knowledge where, where she, you know, she was, she was trying to like chew me away from certain things. And then she said, what kind of movies do you like? And then I kind of spit out all the research I had done. And uh, quickly we we came to a level where we're like, oh, you you know what you're talking about. And I was like, oh yeah. And then I was this young, arrogant kid who was like, of course I know what I'm talking about, but I'm still a kid. But that was your introduction and then you wound up working together. Right. So the, so, so we had this conversation and it stuck in her mind. And then six months later, she emailed me and said, do you want to come work for us? So then she gave me my first job and I would start just going to parties and meeting people. And I was, you know, I was so happy because I was just in this world of people who wanted to talk about movies and they want to talk about movies all the time. And that was their lifestyle. And that was suddenly becoming my lifestyle. And then I took like whatever money I had and just started sending myself places like I had a job. <laughs> 
you know, I would send myself to Sundance and there's one, you know, eventually I sent myself to Cannes and I did it as cheaply as possible. And I just pretended like I was one of them, even though I was not being paid to be there until somebody finally gave me a job. Eventually I became the director of acquisitions for a sales company called the Film Sales Company. And that was my first kind of non big non-festival job that wasn't freelance. While I liked it and I loved working there, um, it's not the side I wanted to be on. I just want to find stuff and show it to people. I, I have a great admiration for the sales side and I spend a lot of time with buyers and sellers and they're some of my closest friends in the industry, but they don't, uh, they're doing something I don't want to be doing. So was there a moment while you had that job that you decided that you wanted to get out of the buying and selling and, and more officially go into collection and curation? I think it was the minute I got the job. My friend had the job and he was leaving and he said, I think you'd be good at this. And then he introduced me to his boss who became my boss. And he said, I think you'd be really good at this. I think you'll like it. Um, I was good at finding things. I had good relationships. I had a decent eye for projects that were going to go into production. Um, but I don't know if I was great as an acquisitions person. I think what he was right at was that I was a good person. Like we, we made a good team in a way, you know? So then at what point were you given the reins? I, I think it was, was it the Philly Fest at, at first where you were made artistic director? Yeah, I think um, there was a big upheaval in our organization and a, a lot of things shifted. Ray Murray left, the TLA kind of pulled out of being involved and the board changed and Andrew Greenblatt, who I knew from French Woods Festival of the Performing Arts, I've known since I was 11, was suddenly put in this position where he was executive director. And he said, do you want to come back and do this? And I said, I'm not sure if I, I'm not sure if I'm what you want. I'm not sure if I'm qualified to be artistic director, but I'll be director of programming if you want to hire an artistic director. So he hired a man named Harlan Jacobson, um, who did it for a year. And then after a year, when Harlan left, we kind of figured out that I could maybe do it, or at least I tried to do it. I went in blindly and just did a few things to see what would happen. <laughs> so do you think that in retrospect, that first time that you were offered, do you think that you could have done it then? I don't know. Probably. I feel like I learned a lot in the year in between. Right. You had that buffer time where you can kind of watch somebody do it. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that was it. You know, I'm not saying I learned it specifically from anybody so much as I just kind of, we were like a ragtag group trying to put it together. So we all had to figure it out. So I was part of you know, it's like, it's like when startups happen, right? And everyone at the startup in some way is probably qualified to do any piece of the job unless they've done it before. You know, when somebody invents, three people invent a thing and they're just hanging around trying to figure out what to do next and they don't hire somebody on that knows business or has done this before and they just kind of like figure it out, all of them have to figure it out together. So all of them can probably jump into any of the roles. And I certainly have a bigger film background than Andy, and he's definitely better than, than me at raising money. But we you know, talk about everything all day. So I'm not saying I can do what he does, and I'm not saying he can do what I do, but I have a very, very small fundamental understanding of what he does. So in a way, if you take that and kind of map it on a trajectory that I was already on, where I was eventually going to be able to do artistic director versus a trajectory that I'm not on versus like raising money. If you map that on, then it's like, yeah, I mean, you're never going to learn unless you try and take a few steps. And so that's, that's how I got there. So is there anything that you know now that you would go back and tell 
Michael Lerman the first time he became the artistic director the, for the first festival? A lot of how I program is based on instinct. I see a film and I try to decide how it's going to fit and where it's going to fit, especially with Philadelphia. And then over time, I've developed an instinct of, oh, these six movies work, so this work will work. But that doesn't necessarily mean, oh, this has an older protagonist, so movies with older protagonists work. It sometimes just means this has the feel of this. So if they like this, they'll like this. And that's a thing that you can only get by experiencing it. That's a thing that you can't tell another human being about in a way. You can tell them like, oh, this movie is like this movie, but they have to see it and feel it. And so there's no way I can go back in time and tell myself that. Those are the biggest lessons that I've gotten. Right. Did it take a long time for you to trust that instinct in yourself? I don't know when the moment is that I did trust that instinct. And I don't know if I fully do now so much as I don't know any other way to really program. You started programming Philadelphia Film Festival and then your festival repertoire grew. So Toronto International Film Festival, Palm Springs International Film Festival, pretty soon you were, I mean, would you say that you festival year round? <laughs> no, I definitely festival year round. I definitely do not have time off. <laughs> There's no such thing. It's just one to the next. Yeah. I, I, my time off is built around other trips that I do. You know, if I go to Cannes, I'll go somewhere off Cannes. I just, I'm really bad at saying no. I'm really bad at, at, at tempering the amount of work that I'm doing. I always, if I, if I like an idea, I want to be involved. Um, and I will do anything I can to get there. Um, one of our programmers, Landon Zakheim, has said to me always, like, the thing about you is if you want to be somewhere, I know you'll be there no matter what, you know, you'll take whatever red eye, you'll do whatever, you'll, you'll cut whatever short to be there. It's sort of the same with the jobs that I do. If I want to make it work, I figure out how to make it work and I'll deal with the rest of it later. Um, and so I've taken on all these things. And I think that like Toronto, for example, has been a dream for a long time. It's such a big institution. It's such an institution that I've been admiring forever. Um, and we get to do something where we figure out, uh, find things and bring them into the world for the first time, which is a rarity in the festival world. Not a lot of festivals do premieres percentage-wise. Um, and we get to find amazing things and bring them into the world for the first time and present them for the first time. And there's something really gratifying about that, that when the opportunity presented itself, I couldn't say no. Yeah, so when, when that opportunity did present itself, you said it was a dream for a while. What went through your mind? Were you, was it a surprise to you? Yes, it was definitely a surprise to me. I had known Carrie Craddock, who's now the director of programming, and at the time was the senior manager for a little while. And uh, we had talked about film a lot. And we also, you know, like any great um, film relationship, had done some karaoke. Um, and uh, one day, Carrie said, you know, like we were just chatting in Berlin about about um, uh, how everything was going. And I said, you know, if you ever have a job opportunity, just joking around. And she was like, well, actually, we do have this thing coming up. Would you be interested in applying? And I said, absolutely. Um, and I applied and I got it. And I was still, I was shocked when I got it. And I will never forget the smiles on their, on both of their faces when they Skyped me to tell me I got it. Because um, <laughs> I can't even imagine what my face looked like. So it, it was it was incredibly exciting. And every day past then has been incredibly exciting. I love working with them. Um, they're some of my favorite people in the world. Uh, and I learn stuff from them every day. So. 
growing up, you were kind of on the move all the time and you are very much still on the move today. Would you even say that you live anywhere or would you say that you live everywhere? I mean, I would say that I live everywhere. I would say that I kind of split my time between Toronto and Palm Springs, just because those are the two kind of bases right now. But I've been spending a lot of time this year, especially I, I was missing theater a lot. So I was going to New York a lot. Um, I spend a lot of time with my mom when I can, so Philadelphia, and obviously with the job too. And I spend, you know, wherever I'm living, I'll probably spend two weeks out of every month at a film festival anyway. Do you enjoy that? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I love it. I love it. Because everything becomes your home, right? Like, I know Park City very well. I know Berlin very well. I know Austin very well. Because you go there. <laughs> you go there every year. Every year, those are the first three, wait, for two weeks out of the first three months of the year, that's where I am and can and going to Tribeca and going to like, yeah, I knew Toronto to a certain extent before I went there because I would go there every year. That's where you went in September. That's what you do. Um, and it's the same thing as like, you go home for Thanksgiving, you go home for Christmas. It's that kind of thing. So totally unrelated to the story. I'm always curious. Are you the type who watches a movie and like talks a lot to the people with you or are you the type that wants to just be silent and observe? Cause I'm very much the latter and the former annoy the crap out of me. And I, <laughs> I'm curious a, a film, a professional film watcher like you, how, what's it like when you're watching a film? So I think there, I think there's several elements to this. First of all, I want to be clear that uh, while I'm more the second, I actually kind of like the first to a certain extent. Um, it depends. I spent a long time when I graduated, when like around the time I graduated college going to Bollywood theaters, because I, I feel like a lot of the Bollywood film culture sometimes is, is people talking in the cinema and it feels very communal. It feels like you're all there together. And there's something nice about that because it drives me nuts when people say film going is not a communal event. You're laughing together. You're crying together. You're all there experiencing the same thing. And there's nothing better than when everyone gasps at the same moment in a movie. Yeah. Is it great if people are paying attention and not talking over something? Of course. And I wouldn't advocate for that. Obviously, we try to keep a good movie going experience for anybody that wants it to be quiet and, and just focus. And that's what we do in the theater. That's what that's the air we try to cultivate. And I respect that. But for myself personally, I'm okay with having people that are discussing what's actually going on on the screen or just verbally reacting because it feels alive and real. There's definitely exceptions to that. There's definitely, you know, people that are having reactions that are counterintuitive or people that I would just find annoying if I was having a conversation with them that I don't want talking through a movie. But while I tend to be a pretty quiet person, there is this element. That said, there are definitely movies, and I like this kind of movie too, where it makes sense to talk a little bit. It makes sense to be discussing something or really just enjoy a joke together in a way that you just want to repeat back a certain word from the joke later in the movie, something like that. And while we're both pretty quiet movie watchers, and I don't want to give the impression that we're not, um, I love watching things with, for example, my TIFF colleague, Peter Kaplowski, who programs the Midnight Madness section, because I feel like we try to make it as much like a midnight madness screening as possible. So we cheer, we applaud, we do things like that. And there's a couple other people that do it with us. And, and it just feels very alive in a way, in a way that it might not feel watching certain other movies. And so there's something about genre cinema, especially with a couple people that know genre cinema so well, that feels very homely. And I like that. So do you schedule movie watching in, into your day to day, like their meetings? I mean, I do, but then it, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like everything else that goes out the window within the first hour, you know? 
But yeah, I love making schedules. The computer science half of my brain, my dad and I built a, a series of Excel formulas. He did most of the work. I just kind of envisioned it um, that'll analyze festival schedules for me and optimize my schedule. So it'll make sure I'm watching something at all times and it'll make sure it'll hit my priorities of what I need to see. And it'll score it based on how many priorities it can get into the schedule. Um, you just feed it the information and it goes. So uh, that that is a tool that he and I worked on that I use at least four times a month. And uh, that side of me just, you know, wants to be the anal retentive. Like I like looking at color blocks on a, on a board. I'm not going to lie. My, one of my favorite parts of, of doing TIFF is working with Carrie Craddock. And then the one year she um, went on maternity leave and allowed me to do the schedule and just building a schedule of 300 movies is pretty incredible. And it's a fun thing to do. There is something also just kind of amazing about the math to me about scheduling. And I love sitting down and just doing the math of like, well, if we have X number of screenings of this, then we can fit this in here. And this is how many times we can do this in this house and all that stuff. And really, really knowing that that's planned so you don't get kind of left in a lurch later. Uh, I, I don't know. There's something very amazing about the nerdy side of our brain that just wants to do that all the time. So with the crazy, crazy schedule that you have, I imagine that you have started to say no to certain things. Is it important to you to continue to do the Philly Film Festival every year? Because it's it's been quite a bit now that you've been the artistic director. Do you see yourself doing that for a long time? I mean, it's home, right? Like, it's always going to be home. It's always going to be the first thing I helped create. And I didn't help create the festival, but this iteration of the festival is very much kind of branded as this is 10 years now that Andy and I have been doing it together and it's our vision and he gave me complete reign. And I don't, you know, I have that in other places in some capacity. I have it in my section of Toronto that I'm allowed to do. I have it in Palm Springs in a lot of ways, but there are many, many infrastructure things that are, are in place. And I'm not saying they weren't in Philadelphia, but I'm saying that like we had the ability to blow it up and make it what we thought made sense. Uh, that said, I, I'm never trying to serve what I want to do. I'm trying to serve what that audience wants, but it's something that I know that audience pretty well now that it feels easy in a way. It feels like I want to keep challenging us, but it feels like I, I can um, kind of wake up and go to a film festival and say, hey, that's a great filming movie. Hey, that's a great filming movie. You know, So that just feels good to do. Plus, selfishly, there's other aspects where I just love being able to do a thing where my mom can walk down the street and see what I did. And I love the city. I love the city's film goers. Who knows what's going to happen next year or 10 years from now or whatever. And it's a, it's a complicated process to say no to things that I want to do. And Philly's something that I love doing. So. so I have a few questions that I ask every guest to just get different perspectives. What would you say is a common misconception about you? I don't even know if this is true. I, I, I think that I tend to give different impressions to different people, given the capacity of what I'm working on. Maybe to a certain extent, there's a misconception about the level of insecurity that I have, because I, I feel like the, the most confident thing about me is, is that I'm comfortable with not knowing something, but I have to project a level of confidence everyone does when they do this job. Um, and I love... You know, I love how supportive teams are to each other. The, the Philly team is supportive. The Palm Springs team is supportive. The TIFF team, when there's no one to go off of and there's no other festival that's like some level of validation where, you know, Cannes has said this is a great movie or a lot of journalists in Cannes have said this is a great movie and there's buzz around it. Um, when you see something for the first time, I'll never, 
I'll never substitute anything for my colleagues who I look up to as like these pillars of bringing brilliant cinema into the world. And we'll call each other and just say, Hey, like, what do you think? Like, do you think it's good enough? Do you think this is, you know, so, so being able to do that feels good, but I think then you've got to go present it and you've got to put all the confidence in the world in it, mostly because you believe it and you mean it, but you know, there's fear there, but you can't show that fear because you're the host. You're the person bringing these films into the world and bringing these filmmakers into the world and you want to be a great host of them and you're sure about them and you're sure about the movie and you're sure about your heart, but you're never sure what's going to happen. And if all of us get heartbroken, all of us, you know, it's like a relationship that starts at the wrong time and place sometimes where it's just like, you know, nobody wanted to do this theme or no one wanted to feel this way about this, or I did not expect people to react this way to this thing that happens sometimes, no matter how much you prep for it. And so when you feel good about it, the best you can do is keep telling yourself and those around you and the filmmaker, how great you feel about it and be as supportive as possible and be like, it's going to go great. But like deep inside your heart, there's always a moment of like, is it going to go great? Yeah, I know it's going to go great, but is it going to go great? And I'm okay with that, mostly because most of the time it does go great, and mostly because I feel comfortable with the decision I made. But I think that like the the misconception that people get when they walk into a space is 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 that there is some arrogance around that. Whereas like in my mind, I'm still sweating bullets. So in the world of film, what's the biggest challenge facing Philadelphia today? We live and die on audiences, right? And so the challenge. And the best thing, and the thing I would want to tell all, all Philadelphians is go see movies, support movies, support movies all the time. There aren't a ton of cinemas in Center City anymore. And a lot of that is because some of them went out of business. And I don't want to say the Philadelphians don't go see movies. They do. Otherwise, I wouldn't have a job and we wouldn't be able to run a building. But it is an amazing art form. And I love when they support it and I get scared when they don't. And I think there are many other great things about Philadelphia, other great arts and music and obviously sports. And so our challenge is to just keep pushing for that real estate. But at the same time, I can't tell you how moving it is every time we push through, every time I see a full house, every time I see the people that appreciate it. I, I will never stop being impressed with Philadelphians and how much there is somebody something for everyone but more there's a person for every type of thing and and if i want to take a risk on something there's going to be somebody there today i saw a high ticket sale number on a movie that is four hours long that is a very tough kind of sad sit and seeing that number meant so much to me so if you want to go see an elephant sitting still make sure you get your tickets now <laughs> awesome the Philadelphia Film Festival runs for 10 days and starts on Thursday, October 18th. So if you're listening on the day this episode was released, that's tomorrow. For more info about that and about Michael, you can head to podphillywho.com forward slash Lerman. That's L-E-R-M-A-N. As always, if you like the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating if you're using Apple Podcasts. That really does help a lot. You can also follow along on Twitter and Instagram at PodPhillyWho. PhillyWho is a Q9 production. Music is by Lee Rosevere. Podcast artwork is by Lauren Carhart. A very special thanks to Hannah Clough. And of course, thanks to Michael for being on the show. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. I'll see you next week. 